lecture builds on our last lecture so let's remember what we looked at in our last lecture our last lecture was a summary of the church's social teaching I mapped it out on this board what was at the top what is the end goal of the church's social teaching The person who is in the image of God. So yeah, image of God was at the top of the thing. But the goal of it is the flourishing of the human person. What was here? Anyone remember? The common good of society, yeah. Okay, which I'm glad you can read rather than remember. That's <laughs> <laughs> the purpose of me starting a lecture trying to ask you to remember is it does something different to the brain when you're trying to retrieve something that is kind of back there. So the person is the end goal of the social teaching. The common good of society supports, enables the flourishing of the human person. The individual persons contribute to the common good of society. You as human beings are not isolated individuals. You need others. You're communal, just as God, his very self and whose image you are made, is communal in the Trinity. You need this common good of society. Now today we're going to focus in particular on that institution whose sole purpose, sole reason for existing is to support, to further, to promote the common good, namely the state, the government. Uh, which we commented on a number of times in our last lecture. And in particular today, we're going to think about how the government has a duty to pass laws to promote the common good. So today we are basically looking just at this question, what is a civil law? So your assignment that's due later in two days is about the natural moral law. Today we are thinking about civil law the laws passed by the state what is a law what do we have as the basis to judge whether a law is a good law or a bad law that's what we're looking at today and your next written assignment which is the last written assignment of this entire course is on the question that we conclude today's lecture with a, a summary breakdown of should make it really easy to do this assignment um, the question of same-sex marriage and laws in that regard. So, that's what we're doing today. Okay, so page one of my notes there in front of you. So, skipping down halfway through uh, to the question I ask, what is the basis of a civil law, a law issued by your state by the civil government. And I, I give three possible answers there. I say consensus, that the law reflects what society agrees to. So there are people out there that will articulate that that's what law is about. It's just what everyone has a consensus about. That's what law should articulate. Another possible answer is to say, well, law is kind of a thing of power. Law is the assertion of one group's power over those without power, which could be a kind of Marxist dialectic critique of power 
in general. Probably though the most common view of law, common secular non-Catholic view of law, is that it's contract. That law is nothing more than a group contract by society. So on more than one occasion I've discussed with, you know, your, your kind of lawyer parishioner or a lawyer that you meet at some parish function that's the son or the father or relation of somebody that's got invited along and, you know, oh, I'm a lawyer. Um, and they, they think they're ever so intelligent and um, tell you what law is. Not thinking, hey, you know, I'm talking to a priest. Uh, I might be a lawyer, but, you know, he's done at least seven years of study. He might have a, some thought about what a law is as well. Um, the most common thing I've had said to me is, oh, well, of course, law is a contract. It's what we all agree to as a contract, that we elect our state representatives and they, by due process, kind of sign us into a contract that we all agree to. That's what a law is. Now, the problem with any of those explanations of what law is, is none of them explain the concept of an unjust law. And everybody agrees that there's such things as bad laws, unjust laws. Um, so, you know, the laws on slavery in this country, they were laws in terms of due process, in terms of being a contract enacted by society. But we'd say that was an unjust law. Well, what's your criteria for a law being an unjust law? Well, none of those three fit, give you a way to explain. So to say that none of the above manages to articulate the purpose of law. And we'll notice this with Aquinas' notion of reason and the common good. Say so none of the above offers a basis to judge a law to be an unjust law. So you see that initial question I'm posing there. What's St. Thomas's answer? The catechism, somewhat unusually, you know, sometimes the catechism kind of is a little more general and summarizing. Sometimes the catechism pulls out very specific things from St. Thomas in particular. Here in the definition of law, the catechism quotes St. Thomas very specifically. Um, so Josh, can you read that quotation defining law for us? Law is an ordinance of reason for the common good promulgated by the one who is in charge of the community. Okay, so we're going to break that down. And I indicate there in bold the different parts of the summa that those different parts come from. An ordinance, a decree from your government of reason for the common good made by those who have care of community, whether it's a democracy or the king, and promulgated. So if any one of those elements isn't there, it's not a law. If it's not promulgated, it's not a law. If it's not for the common good, it's not a true law. We'll come on in a bit. What is then a law that isn't a true law? How do we engage with it? Um, but first I want to break down each of those concepts, reason, common good and such, in terms of what's meant by those. So since it's not a law, are you required to as I said, we're going to come on to that later in the lecture, so we will notice the question when you should rise up in revolution against an unjust law, when you should assassinate the tyrant, um, and so forth. Um, so these all exist in our Catholic tradition, well articulated, 
what grounds. Okay, so page two. First kind of thing to look at. A. Civil law must be an ordinance of right reason, i.e. based on the natural law. So remember when we looked at the natural law, uh, I talked about reason being this thing. Often we use this term right reason, which is kind of a duplication of words really, that reason is right reason. But just to be clear what we're meaning, right reason. So, I then have a quotation from the Catechism. John Paul, can you read that for us? The exercise of authority is measured morally in terms of its divine origin, its reasonable nature, and its specific object. No one can command or establish what is contrary to the dignity of persons and the natural law. So, that's how you measure the exercise of authority. The government's done something, what do you measure it by? Reasonable nature is among those things there, and that, which means the natural law. Then quote uh, a phrase, rather technical phrase, from a natural law um, theologian, Russell Hissinger. Say, human laws determine the eura left indeterminate by natural law. Eura meaning a Latin, a Latin term that's kind of meaning law, justice, good reason, it's kind of a broader thing. I'll give two examples to explain. I say, natural law says that theft is sinful. You all remember that? Everyone should be able to know that. Natural law, theft is sinful. Positive law, i.e. by your local government, establishes how thieves are to be punished. Also, you could say how to define property, how to define theft, how to measure and enact punishment. All of those are specifics that this general precept of the natural law, theft is sinful, needs to be made specific in a particular culture, in a particular society. That is the function of your government law. Second example that Hunter is already smirking over. Um, Natural law says that some regulation of traffic is needed. Positive law determines that we should drive on the left side of the road. Yeah, is it going to be the left or is it going to be the right? Someone's got to decide or else those cars are going to meet. On one level, there's no... You'd be hard-pressed to say the natural law determines, reason itself shows that all properly functioning societies, cars should drive on this side of the road. No, someone's got to decide. And there are some decisions on some level quite arbitrary, but a decision has to be made. That type of decision is part of the role of government to make specific what is general Things like traffic somehow need to be regulated. How do you make it specific? It needs to be specific. That's the function of government. So I say the authority of a specific positive law, as we call them, positive laws being these kind of things that are just directly kind of added in some sense, derives from its connection to the natural law and is determination by a valid authority. 
then say Thomistically. Um, say law, as St. Thomas describes it, is a subsection of reason. So reason, the intellect, a subsection of that is the law. Reason directs human acts because humans are rational beings. Law directs human acts with the addition of a binding command. Thus a law contrary to reason is ipso facto not a true law. So a law is a command of reason. If it's not reason, right reason, it's not really a law. The natural law is the ground. The positive law is the specification. So natural law is general. Positive government law is specific. But you can't have a species unless it's within its genre. Genius. Yeah. Somehow, I guess it's, it's striking me as odd that that could determine whether or not something's a sin, because if it's not stealing... Uh, no, it wouldn't change it being a sin. It would change how that all gets unpacked at the level of your government, at your society. Well, but if it's not private property and you took it, like let's say it's... Uh, Okay, you're in a sense jumping to the next question, which is kind of, why do I have to obey the government? So the government has decided this is property, the government has decided therefore this is an example of theft. Who's the government to tell me what to do? Yeah, that's a very good American you are, John Paul. Yeah, that's just exactly what we would be expecting. And as we were pointing out in the last lecture, our American mindset just instinctively doesn't connect some of these things other cultures, Catholic cultures, would. Are we also going to talk about who gets to determine what is reasonable? That's a different question, yeah. So who decides, who judges whether something is right reason? Yeah. On one level, it is the function of the government to do that, but the government should draw its criteria who does it draw its criteria to? Well, actually, bishops teaching truths, philosophers teaching truths, that should be what the body politics is drawing from in drawing up laws. But the determination does belong to the government, but they don't do that infallibly. But they should be looking to something outside of themselves, beyond themselves, looking somehow to right reason. Not just, well, we said and we're the government. Um, let's hold that question and come back as we look at more examples here. 
Point B here, I say the need for authority and linked with that the need for civil laws. Uh, Michael, can you read the first quote from the Catechism? God's fourth commandment, honor your father and mother, also enjoins us to honor all who for our good have received authority in society from God. It clarifies the duties of those who exercise authority as well as those who benefit from it. Eric, next one. Those subject to authority should regard those in authority as representatives of God, who has made them stewards of his gifts. Be subject, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution. Which actually we already quoted in our last lecture. So, the Catechism is saying, you must obey the authority, the civil authority. The Bible was saying, you must obey the emperor, fear God and honor the emperor, even when the emperor was a pagan persecuting you. You still need the emperor because you need the functioning of civil society. Someone's got to decide what side of the road you're going to drive on, otherwise there's going to be death and chaos. Page 3. So I say civil obedience, this is kind of, I think, linked with John Paul's question, obedience to civil laws is thus a matter of two things. One, divine revelation, fear God and honor the emperor, and two, natural law. Natural law tells you, as the citizen, that you must obey the government. I say there's a twofold need for authority and civil laws in our nature. Your nature as a human being, you need it. First, man's nature as a social being. Coordination requires an authority and laws to coordinate. So is the road going to go over here or is the road going to go over there? Are you going to drive on the left or are you going to drive on the right? Left or right? Um, you need authority to coordinate you. And that means you should obey the authority when it's acting within its just powers. We'll come on to what you do when it has exceeded those powers. But it has the job of defining property it has the job, therefore, of saying what is theft in a, the particular. Second, though, man's nature is fallen, sinful. The effects of original sin incline men to sin. And so positive laws by the government are a threat of punishment for breaking the natural law. So laws against theft, laws against murder and so forth, the threat of punishment is another thing you need government for because we're sinful, because we're fallen. This is kind of one of the things we need government for. So two things in your human nature while you need authority. You're social, you need to be coordinated. And you're sinful, you need someone in some sense to keep you in line. You need authority because you are a human being. Therefore, you need to obey authority when it's acting justly. Two examples I give there of morally obligatory obedience. Tax laws. So, honesty in completing tax forms. Uh, Francisco, can you read that quotation from the Catechism? Submission to authority and corresponsibility for the common good makes it morally obligatory to pay taxes to exercise the right to vote and to defend one's country. 
pay to all, all of them their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, revenue to whom revenue is due, respect to whom respect is due, honor to whom honor is due. So that's not me, that's the catechism. Traffic laws, for example, speed limits. Who shall I pick to read this one? <laughs> Go on. Constant duty to drive carefully and with a sense of responsibility. From that well-known liberal Pope Benedict. <laughs> so, um, now the point I want to make to you, such obedience is a matter of sin, not merely a matter of fearing getting caught. Did I unpack this question of the speed limit in terms of the mind of the legislator already? S did I? No. I'll repeat it then. So, because some people maybe weren't listening. Uh, so, the legislator, when he passes a law, has an intention built into the law. Generally speaking, it's the intention of legislators setting speed limits that you're not going to arrest and imprison someone for going 71 when the limit's 70. There's a kind of built-in wiggle room before the penalty gets enacted. The mind of the legislator is therefore not just an exact number 70. So if I'm saying it's a sin to break the speed limit, there's a wiggle limit around that. Um, I think generally, if you're going 80, a cop in this country won't pull you over. If that's how the law is designed and implemented, that's the mind of the legislator. So in terms of the question of sin, I'm not saying the literal number 70. But that doesn't mean you can say, well, whatever. We have a duty to obey authority because authority ultimately, Scripture says, comes from God. All of that is grounded in your nature as a human being. This may be kind of a new concept to be playing with, but that's the key thing starting this. You need authority. You need government. And therefore you are required morally to obey government when it enacts just laws. So if I don't vote, because interestingly, the catechism listed, someone asked me this question just recently, to exercise the right to vote. I don't think that would be an example of an intrinsically evil law, and that I don't think in all circumstances there's an obligation to vote. Sometimes, how do you best register your protest against a failing government, an unjust government, by vast masses of society refusing to participate in the election and saying this is a fraud. Um, but to do it out of laziness, to do it out of just can't be bothered, to do it out of just a type of cynicism rather than a kind of positive engagement by not voting, there would be many wrong reasons to not vote. I would be very wary of not voting. Um, okay, let's move on, but it's, it's a good question. Um, point C on my list here. Uh, 
another criteria of what defines a law, and remember in any way St. Thomas gives a definition, if it doesn't satisfy this, it isn't a law. So, civil law must be ordered to the common good. See, civil authority and its laws exist to serve the common good of society. That is the measure of whether government is government or whether it's tyranny. That's the measure of whether a law is law or whether it's some form of tyranny. Does it serve the common good? Quoting again from the Catechism, it is the role of the state to defend and promote the common good of society. Then I give two examples. Civil laws ordered to private goods. For example, those rich politicians who enact laws to protect the rich. That is not the common good being protected. Or, on the other side of the spectrum, left-wing groups enacting laws just to protect their special interest groups like trade unions. Now, if the law serves the rich in order that, according to a certain economic theory, when you give the rich a tax break, you create more wealth and the poor become richer too. You all heard that argument, yeah? If that is true, then a law giving the rich a tax break for the purpose of promoting the common good isn't about serving the rich. But if it's about serving the rich, not in order to serve the common good, then it's not for the common good, it's not a just law. Similarly, the church teaches in its social teaching the right of association of workers. But there are many examples in the 20th century where governments so get kind of supported controlled by trade unions, that the trade union block overpowers the rest of the society and disempowers workers that aren't in those groups and doesn't serve the common good. So the measure of a specific law promoting defending trade unions has to be, is it still supporting trade unions in a way that serves the common good or just in a way that serves those union members? So the common good is the end goal, is the measure of any particular civil law. And in another way, what's the measure of common good? Right reason, which is kind of almost articulating the same thing, but with a more specific application of what we mean by right reason, the common good. Does the specific law flourish society, which is what we generally mean by the common good? Yeah. So if the intention is expressed in a way that it is supposed to serve the common good, but that is not the genuine intention, do you trust the, the politician or do you not? Um, I'd say sometimes when I vote, I know the politician's a crook and I know he's lying to me, um, but I think his policies are going to serve the common good. Dare I say that's why many people voted for Trump. Not, oh, I vote for Trump because he's just a nice man. Did anyone say that? Um, but there were many people who voted for him thinking 
he's a liar, he's a crook, um, but somehow thinking his policies were going to serve the common good anyway. So even if the pol other politicians are deceitful in the reasons they're promoting a law, the measure of the law ultimately is, does it serve the common good? I know that seems to conflict with what I said about the mind of the legislator. Um, and those things are, shall we say, intention. But I think the ultimate measure is the common good. So I have to be able to vote. And I, in order to vote, like I have to know like how specific things are going to affect the common good. Yes. But a lot of the stuff, at least here, is so complicated that it is difficult to tell except for what a politician is telling me about the piece of legislation. Yeah, and that's in part why we trust groups of politicians, where we somehow feel that's a group I trust more rather than the specifics of specific laws. But in as much as we are capable, we should be trying to look at those specifics. And that's the measure of them. And so it is not the bishop's job to tell the politician what the civil law should be, but the politician and those civil laws can be publicly denounced by the bishop for failing to conform with various criteria of the moral law. Um, but it is the politician's job to make the law specific, um, even though those politicians should then be held accountable for what they are promoting and voting for. Okay, the last part of our puzzle here. D, every law must be promulgated. So law doesn't merely indicate right and wrong, rather it actually commands. So I quote another um, moral theologian there, God does not merely point and observe it's wrong to steal, rather he commands thou shalt not steal. So government law, if it doesn't match this final level of promulgation, it isn't a law. So the president said so, but Congress didn't. In this country, that then isn't a law. Congress says so, but the president doesn't. And I said two, a two-thirds majority through the, um, it isn't actually a law. So this final stage of promulgation is what makes law a law. Okay, now we're getting onto the question that some of you have been implicitly asking a number of ways already. Page four, unjust laws. Yes. That's not a question for the whole class. Um, you have to do for me what you do for others, however you resolve that question. Um, a civil law, I say, is only a true law, and as much as it conforms to reason, i.e. to the natural moral law, or conforms to the common good, part of that. An unjust law is not a law, but an act of violence. Now, that's a very dramatic term. How are we describing it? The Catechism quotes St. Thomas, it is an act of violence. 
the tyrant in power is violent to his people in various ways, an unjust law is such an act of violence against the people. John Paul the Great uh, uses this phrase calling it a caricature of legality. So it has all the outward trappings of law, but it isn't really a law. It's a caricature of legality. And say, on the status of laws in favor of abortion and euthanasia, he wrote, Brother Adam, can you, the first quote? Really what, really what we have here is only the tragic caricature of legality, the democratic ideal is only truly such when it acknowledges and safeguards the dignity of every human person is betrayed in its very foundations. When this happens, the process leading to the breakdown of a genuinely human coexistence and the disintegration of the state itself has already begun. To claim the right to abortion, infanticide, and euthanasia, and to recognize that right, that right in law, means to attribute to human freedom a perverse and evil significance, that of an absolute power over others and against others. This is the death of true freedom. And then quoting again from him, in the case of an intrinsically unjust law, such as a law permitting abortion or euthanasia, it is therefore never licit to obey it or to take part in a propaganda campaign in favor of such a law or to vote for it. Now, where does that leave our so-called Catholic pro-abortion politicians? Um, so I say this little section, the Christian in civil society. So first I say the lay sphere has a rightful autonomy from religious authorities. So for a Catholic politician to say, it's not for the bishop to tell me how to pass laws. Well, on one level, yes that the laity are rightfully autonomous from the bishops. But the lay sphere does not have a rightful autonomy from morality, from sin, from what is right and wrong. And the bishop has a job to say what is sin, what is right and wrong. So I say uh, a lay Catholic must thus act in accord with the natural law not in accord with the norms of popular culture. A lay Catholic politician must legislate in accord with the natural law, with right reason, not in accord with popular opinion, even that of his own constituents. In the footnote there, 11, you can see in bold there, I say, it is a question of the lay Catholic's duty to be morally coherent. There cannot be two parallel lives. That the Catholic politician can't be a Catholic on Sunday at Mass, but then vote for abortion on Monday in Congress. You can't have two parallel lives. You have to be an integrated person. So yes, it's not the bishop's job to tell the politician how to write law, but it is the bishop's job to tell the politician those laws you are promoting are enacting things that are contrary to the natural law, contrary to the divine law. You can't have two parallel lives. Yeah. Are any of these things, like some of the politicians we have now who are for abortion, things, are they like grounds for excommunication? That's a question beyond this course. 
Yeah, I knew someone was going to ask that. Um, I'll cover tyrannicide. Excommunication is a canon law question. Uh, okay, page five. Responsibility before unjust laws. So you as the citizen, an unjust law has been passed by your government. How do you engage with it? What's your responsibility before an unjust law? I note three principles. First, authority does not derive moral legitimacy from itself, says the Catechism. Catechism goes on, blind obedience doesn't excuse. I say, but disobedience can sometimes cause circumstantial evils that imply obedience is preferable. So let me start before we go on to the rest of the page there. Frequently it happens Protesters go on protest against a bad law. They start rioting. They start destroying private property. They start harming innocent individuals. Civil disobedience turns into an offense against the common good and again, offense against the innocent. So sometimes your disobedience causes more problems than if you just put up with it. That's the issue at stake here. It's not a true law, it's an unjust law, but will your disobeying it actually cause more problems than just obeying it? Next line there I say, and here I'm quoting the Catechism which quotes John the Twenty-Third: unjust laws do not bind the conscience. So citizens are obliged in conscience to refuse obedience to unjust laws. But citizens should refute, continue to serve the common good in other matters and obey the civil authority in other matters. So if your government is supporting an unjust war in Iraq, that doesn't mean you can say, I oppose the government, therefore I'm not going to follow the speed limits anymore or I'm not going to observe the red lights and the traffic signs. Um, the general functioning of society requires you to continue to generally obey a government, uh, even if there are specific laws that are unjust, that you, and un, unjust laws you are going to somehow oppose. Okay, here I, Next thing, unpacking St. Thomas, he has an article on the summer here, and all those quotations are from when to obey an unjust law. So it's not a true law, it's an unjust law, it's an act of violence against the people. When would you obey it anyway? To avoid scandal, to avoid civil disturbance, to avoid inflicting a more grievous hurt, for which cause a man should yield his, even his right According to Matthew 5.40, if a man take away your coat, give him your cloak also. But in any of the cases St. Thomas lists above, the unjust law per se doesn't bind the conscience. If the law binds, it binds per accidents due to the effects of one's disobedience to the law. What would be scandal or disturbance? I say, for example, if one's disobedience would cause the public to lose confidence in what is otherwise a generally 
just legal system. So sometimes parents can do this to children, that parents can have um, an attitude of disrespect to authority and to government that, that is so common in them that their children growing up grow up with a disrespect for authority in general. A scandal being created there. So there are some laws we should just obey even though they're not really laws and they don't bind in themselves in conscience. They only bind in an indirect way because if I disobey something worse will end up happening. St. Thomas says, clarification, however, laws contrary to the divine law, which includes the Ten Commandments, must nowise be observed. So there are some laws that you must, under no circumstance, obey. Over the page, for examples of this. So, five examples here of, I say, possible examples of laws contrary to the divine law that you should never, never, never obey. Example one, if an emperor passes a law requiring sacrifice to idols, then the law does not bind because it is an unjust law, uh, unjust on grounds of opposing the divine good. And say so such were the laws in ancient pagan Rome. Second, Nazi laws in the 20th century requiring the genocide of the Jews. Contrary to the divine law, contrary to the Ten Commandments, you may never obey. Third, if a king and his parliament pass a law changing the number of the sacraments and forbidding the celebration of what had previously been called sacraments, then the law does not bind. It is an unjust law on grounds of the divine positive law concerning seven sacraments. And I say such was the law in England after the Protestant King Henry VI. COVID-19 example. Government COVID regulations on the celebration of the sacraments have seriously risked exceeding the state's just authority. I say good examples have seen bishops legislating after they consult with the state, but it's the bishops who legislate, not the state. And I say as an example from history, uh, we could look to the great St. Charles Borromeo, Bishop of Milan, who closed all his churches for two years to fight a plague. Admittedly, a plague with a higher death rate than COVID. Um, but as a principle, um, see what I'm pointing to here? Would that be an example of an unjust law that you must not obey, should not obey? I think that this is certainly close to such a scenario. <laughs> um, I'm saying it's close. So, um, so that was not, it's not contrary to divine law. To, to be said. Always and everywhere, no, it's not. There are examples when it's possible for the sake of the common good to forbid public gatherings, which includes forbidding the celebration of the sacraments in common. But did the circumstances warrant it? Did the common good call for it genuinely? 
this I'd say is at least a borderline case. Um, yeah. A law common to the contrary to the human good. So, um, I think the laws I was kind of speculating around earlier about tax breaks for the rich, um, or excessive protection for trade unions, or th there are many things that are not the divine law, but impact on the human good, and that particular laws will either not be perfect, and perf imperfect isn't the same as unjust, um, or they will actually not be just. Most of the time, a law that isn't just in those type of questions, we should just go along with while campaigning to have it changed. Eric? Just with the COVID-19 examples, so some were saying like it was like the state trying to, you know, since we're such in a secular world, trying to kind of get rid of right. like the power uh, of the church. So would that be like a legitimate like point of view or, yeah, just kind of that. So if the rationale of the state was to save us from COVID by prohibiting gatherings of people and prohibit interactions of people, but the state allows abortion during that time period, allows you to go buy alcohol during that time period, then the state's definition of essential services, which was the phrase used so often, doesn't seem to be coherent, does seem to be phrased in an anti-religious structure. I think 10 years from now, we're going to come back to some of those questions and think, how should we have acted? Um, and a generation of bishops after this generation of bishops will possibly look back at these bishops. And to be fair, probably say, well, who on earth knew what was really going on, but was it just criteria being enacted? Let me finish this page before we come more on, on some examples maybe to throw out here. Okay, question of revolution. So, it's an unjust law by an unjust government. When should the people rise up? Uh, Eric, can you quote this thing? So here we are quoting again from the Catechism, armed resistance. And later in this course, we'll look at the question of the just war and the criteria of that mirror these. Armed resistance to oppression by political authority is not legitimate unless all the following conditions are met. One, there is certain grave and prolonged violation of fundamental rights. Two, all other means of redress have been exhausted. Three, such resistance will not provoke worse disorders. Four, there is well-founded hope of success. And five, it is impossible reasonably 
to foresee any better solution. First example I give there, the American War of Independence, did it satisfy those five conditions? So the alleged high co just cause high taxation. Was there a reasonable hope of a better solution, uh, independence? Now is there, you know, whenever you have a revolution, is there a reasonable hope of a satisfactory independence? That's a hard thing to evaluate when you're starting out. But that has to be, if there isn't a reasonable hope of independence, then you're just going to spill blood in vain. That has to be part of the criteria of the analysis. A serious cause, grave cause, lasting cause, and you've got another solution that's going to come up when you have your revolution. You've got an alternative type of government somehow planned. Example two, big government. We all hate big government. Uh, big government taxes us and takes away our civil liberties. Thus, you buy guns, board yourself in a log cabin in the Rocky Mountains. So again, the alleged just cause high taxation, but is there a reasonable hope of a better solution there? No, the FBI are coming for you, and there's only one way that's going to end. Um, that isn't, <laughs> that isn't a call, uh, a plan, uh, morally speaking. Another solution, tyrannicide. Tyrannicide being when you kill the tyrant. Tyranny, I, I quote, is an act of violence, a type of criminality. I give the example there, the ungodly violent rule of Queen Elizabeth I of England. Tyrants, according to St. Thomas, may be killed by anyone who has the effective power to do so, with the condition envisaging a peaceful transfer of power. So if I assassinate Elizabeth I, and we have waiting in the wings someone who will then almost seamlessly replace her without a massive bloodbath of people across the nation, then assassinating the tyrant works as a solution. So we went into Iraq in the Iraq war um, not that long ago in effect to assassinate the tyrant Saddam Hussein. Um, he was an evil man. I don't think I'm saying anything particularly controversial in saying that he killed many thousands of his own people. Did we have a reasonable plan of a better solution? Well, very obviously we didn't, and it was much caused damage to them and to us since. Just to say he's a tyrant, I'm going to kill him, is not grounds for tyrannicide. And as St. Thomas describes it, tyrannicide, his criteria, only work within your own society. So I can kill my tyrant, but that doesn't give you a criteria to go around and kill tyrants all around the world. Um, the criteria for assassinating tyrants, the criteria for revolting against an unjust government. Yeah, um, just would, uh, what if, let's say, there, you've got allies 
know, in Iraq. In Iraq, or like, you know, um, any other tyrant, you have another country as an ally, and they're asking for your help to kill the tyrant, and ultimately it's the other country that kills the tyrant. Um, um, so I think there could have been a whole way of that Iraq situation playing out that could have been utterly different and could have been just. One of the reasons, so when we go through the just war criteria, one of the reasons it's important for us as Catholics to have a coherent sense of what a just war is and an unjust is so when governments are talking about going to war, we can say, okay, but we need to do it this way, not that way. If all Christians are doing, as the, the kind of hippie era of Christian did, is just saying, war's bad, war's bad, war's bad, and not really offering another solution, that not only isn't being authentic to our Catholic roots, um, it's, we just end up getting ignored. Um, so on one level, as a moral theologian, I'm very pro-war. War is one of the tools towards justice. I would also say I think every example I can think of of how the Americans and the British fought wars in the 20th century, every one of those wars was unjust on our part. Not because they had an unjust cause, but how we fought them wasn't just. And if we'd had a more precise mindset to be holding our politicians to account in how they did things, we could have achieved those good outcomes we were aiming for in a just manner. Yeah. What about going into Berlin? Okay, you're now asking about just war more. We will have a, a whole lecture on just war as war in a few weeks. Yeah. So how can you have confidence in your understanding of like what a well-founded hope success because like obviously if I'm willing to do it I think that I'm going to succeed but how like what's a litmus test of like what actual well-founded hope is instead of just me kind of being like sure yeah I'd be over optimistic are you preparing for a just war hunter do you have something in mind um, on one level this is the job of government this is why we elect governments. So we as people know we don't have access to all the information. Government hopefully has information from spies and networks and such that we don't have. Um, it's the job of those government officials to be looking at that data and map out a plan. And if they haven't mapped out a plan with some coherence and structure to it, then they shouldn't proceed. That's still too vague an answer. I think maybe it is because I could. I, I assume that there was a guy that they had in mind when they went into Iraq that they wanted to put into power, but it obviously didn't work out. Because I think in a lot of these situations we do have a plans, plan. and yeah. very often in other situations they have backfired terribly. Yeah. 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 Um, Okay, this is only a catechism introductory level course, um, so we're not going to resolve um, applications here, but I, you've all got a feel for the basic criteria here. 
and our bigger question, what is a law? Five par parts of what makes a, a law are an ordinance, so the government has decreed it, of reason. right reason, ordered to common the common good, made by those with care of the community, the government, and promulgated. Leading us on to the question of marriage laws. So, um, page seven. I asked you to read page seven, eight, and nine in advance of this lecture. Um, this is a specific example. Society must be promoted by the state, flourishes when you have the common good. One of the ways we cause the common good to flourish is families. Uh, you all know the phrase of John Paul II, as goes the family, so goes society. If family is in crisis, society is in crisis. If family is healthy, society is healthy. If children grow up in a healthy, stable environment, they'll just tend to come out as healthy, stable individuals and society will flourish. It is the job of the state to pass laws that make that possible and not just possible to promote it. Let's go through some of that in detail. So let's skip down to the section on page seven for the common good. So quoting again, it's the role of the state to defend and promote the common good of civil society. So marriage, I say, society needs children to ensure its future. So why is China on the verge of imploding right now? Because they are living out the consequence of their one-child policy. Their workforce is on the edge of crumpling. Um, we are going to suffer colossally as they collapse. Um, who knows how that's going to unpack. Society needs children. A future workforce, a future population, you need children. Society needs that. Society therefore needs a stable place for children to be raised. They don't grow up in a vacuum. They need a stable place for that to happen. Thus, society needs marriage and needs to promote marriage to serve this function. So what's wrong with same-sex marriages? Uh, Josh, can you read that quote for us? So these, if you look at the footnotes, these are various statements from the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith that came out in the various years leading up to, in our country and others, same-sex marriage becoming law. So, Because married couples ensure the succession of generations and are therefore eminently within the public interest, civil law grants them the institutional recognition Homosexual unions, on the other hand, do not need specific attention from a legal standpoint since they do not exercise this function for the common good. Marriage promotes family, promotes the common good. Same-sex unions do not promote the common good. They, just, they don't exist for that function. So why, therefore, are they going to get that same right in law? Do you all know what this phrase de facto unions are? So when two people live together, but they're not married, uh, that's a de facto union. So they're not just hooking up for the weekend, but 
they're living together for a long period of time, a de facto union. And in many countries, many states, there are various proposals, well, you know, they're kind of a husband and wife. The state should treat them like a husband and wife. If one of them dies, they should get the same inheritance rights as if they were married, or they should get the same tax breaks as if they were married and so forth. But they haven't committed themselves to each other in a way that serves the common good, that serves future children they might have, so if society benefits them and they're not benefiting society, that's not a fair distribution. Michael, can you read the quote there? Through public recognition of de facto unions, an asymmetrical judicial framework is established, where if society would take on obligations towards the partners in a de facto union, they in turn would not take on the essential obligations to society that are proper to marriage. adoption by same-sex couples. So of course um, it would be said, well, a same-sex couple, um, Jim and John, they can't physically have a baby together, but that's not the only way people have babies together these days, is it? They, they adopt, you know, Elton John adopted a baby, or they can pay a woman to have their baby, or have the baby of one of them. Um, increasingly, when you do bioethics, splicing bits of genetic material, even from the same gender, two people coming together. So somehow the third person that is the birthing mother, who isn't genetically related at all, will give birth to the genetic child that has bits from both of Jim and John. Um, but that isn't, the, the union itself of Jim and John has no inherent dynamism pointing to that. It's an extrinsic thing that some have been added to. So we'll look at that in more detail when we look at bioethics. But why isn't it right for the child to be raised in that situation, to be, as Elton John and others, adopted by a same-sex couple? See, same-sex couples are not like marriage and that they're not suitable places to raise children. Um, Adam, can you read this quote for us? As experience has shown, the absence of sexual complementarity in these unions creates obstacles in the normal development of children who would be placed in the care of such persons. They would be deprived of the experience of either fatherhood or motherhood allowing children to be adopted by persons living in such unions would actually mean doing violence to these children in the sense that their condition of dependency would be used to place them in an environment that is not conducive to their full human development. This is gravely immoral and an open contradiction to the principle recognized also in the United Nations Convention in the, on the Rights of the Child, that the best interests of the child as the weaker and more vulnerable party are to be the paramount consideration in every case. The best interests of the child. This is a phrase the church uses a lot, a phrase that um, gets either ignored or twisted uh, in many secular discussions. The same-sex couple wanting to adopt the child, is that for the sake of the child or do they want 
to celebrate their love by having a child together. Or when a man and woman are married, having a child together, celebrating their love, we don't say is a, an issue, but it just isn't organic to the nature of the union of Jim and John together, or Susie and Betty. Um, there's just nothing in that dynamism that gives birth to a child. The experience of either fatherhood or motherhood. Yeah. I've always heard people make the argument, which this is a better one, but like from the Christian standpoint, like you look at the Holy Family and you have a mother and a father. Yeah, so the Holy Family models for us a father and a mother. Even Jesus, God incarnate, um, was raised by a foster father. Um, the church, however, doesn't phrase the arguments here in Bible terms. So as I've said before, our good Protestant friends will phrase everything Bible, 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 Bible. Um, but we're wanting to give an argument here grounded in reason, in natural law. The experience of complementarity in your parents. Is that essential to grow up healthy? Well, all through human history, we can see examples of orphans who lose one of their parents. They don't automatically turn out dysfunctional. So we need to be careful in arguing this, that we don't say it's absolutely essential, but it is normal. And a child who doesn't have that fatherhood at home will somehow need to have that fatherhood role model in some form, if he's going to be able to know what to become. Um, the key point, though, is, is one thing to know a child who already exists kind of loses their father or loses their mother. That's different from starting out with a child who from the beginning you're planning will never have a father or mother at home. See, that's a different thing to, to create that situation is different from when that situation tragically develops. See what I'm trying to articulate about not overstating the case, but how nonetheless human experience, all kinds of statistics show us um, children grow up best when they have a father and mother at home. You know, all our, so much of our crime in the inner cities because of fatherless children. And vast swathes of neighborhoods where there are basically no fathers around. Maybe men wandering around, but no fathers uh, in that role model. If society wants healthy future children, if it wants a healthy future workforce, it needs to create legal structures that are going to foster and facilitate that. So what ways can the government support marriage? At the risk of stating some of the obvious things here. And some of these are small, but they are real. Did you? Maybe like 
give them benefits for getting married, like straight couples for getting married, like, I don't know what the ones exist, but can they get like tax benefits or something? Tax benefits, yeah. I was going to say tax benefits. Recognition in, in like legal cases or anything like that. So when some other thing in law comes up that you're recognized as a couple, not just recognized as individuals, so that you own things together, you have bank accounts together. Um, these are things that the government can just facilitate and normalize. Maternal or paternal leave. Yep. Um, inheritance laws. Now I know that it's only kick out, kick in kind of at the end, but having those as part of the structure promotes and normalizes marriage. as I just said, normalizes marriage. So there's a way that the government establishes a structure by which marriage just looks normal. So that you grow up looking to be married. Rather than, you know, increasing, certainly Western Europe, even more than whatever you think you're experiencing here, children growing up with no thought of marriage. Because it's not really a thing they see in their parents' generation, um, that they see their peers talking about. Um, yeah. Instead of giving tax breaks or anything, removing social services, something like um, a mother that receives a pension from the government because she's single doesn't invite her to find a man who provides for her and her family. Mm -hmm. So uh, other governments give me $100 a month. It's not a whole lot, but I'm not doing anything. I don't need to put up with a man. Yeah. Um, conversely, um, or rather conversely, um, a positive benefit, the government can give benefits to couples having children. Uh, so I remember after the Second World War, France in particular, uh, the decimation of their population, they were aware of the need, if France was going to continue to be France, they needed to increase the population. They rewarded mothers who had many children, which, you know, a generation later when the pill and everything came along, somehow that would have been seen as abhorrent. Um, but the government recognizing society will not continue unless somehow we promote there being more children, we need to give benefits to mothers who have lots of children. Okay, so what have we covered today? We've been thinking, this has flowed out of what we've looked at last time when we were looking at the flourishing of the person, needing the common good, the state being the specific institution that exists to promote the common good. Today, thinking what is a civil law as a particular mechanism of the government, of the state. A law, the catechism quotes very specifically, an ordinance of right reason for the common good made by those with care for the community and promulgated. That's what it needs to be, to be a true law. If it isn't, it's not, it's an unjust law. An unjust law is not a true law. It's an act of violence against the people. And so pages seven, eight, and nine, 
and the criteria of framing that in the context of St. Thomas's definition of law, that is the last paper for the course. <laughs>